When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to our first episode of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm Andrew. I'm Adam. And we want to introduce all of our listeners to what this podcast is all about. So I'll start with you, Adam. Uh, Where are you coming from? So I'm broadcasting from Great Neck, New York. Um, Because of the quarantine, I'm in my childhood bedroom which don't even let's just move on um and you andrew where are you so i'm also on long island but i'm further east i'm in port jefferson new york and i'm not in my childhood bedroom i was doing that uh a month ago i wasn't in the bedroom though so that's an interesting location i was in a game room but i am at my desk uh, so, you know, it's working, it's working. And that's where I am right now. If technology's up and running, that's all I can ask for. Um, so Adam, tell the listeners, when did you, uh, defend your dissertation? Yeah, I defended my dissertation December of 2019, right? A few months ago. And if you, um, so basically right before the world collapsed. Also, I got my BA in English from Columbia uh, in May of 2008, which was the last time the world markets collapsed. So I'm kind of proud of the fact that I'm two for two on English degrees on the cusp of economic recession. <laughs> Your book because ended by this, it. This is gonna this is gonna be the the special something that, that makes my biography readable one day. Yeah. Well it's the cover page. I can see it already. Adam Katz uh economic col- at the um uh, university in an age of economic collapse or something like that. Um, sure, there's a creative title we could think about uh, for the p- publishing industry. Um, Goodness. But yeah, well, so congratulations on your on the defending your dissertation. That'll, yeah. that'll be what we call so, it. You know, as I you. envy you for hard. defending your dissertation. It was really hard, and I'm glad I did it. Yeah, and I have of. some envy because I'm still working on my dissertation, so... You know, my ideal goal is to have it done in the spring. Yeah. And it will get done. Um, Adam is helping me with moral encouragement. Uh, uh, if that's if that's my job, you're fucked. <laughs> Don't worry, I have other support systems to rely on, too. Um, but my undergrad was done not far from Columbia, uh, but at Kane University in North Jersey, still maintained my Jersey roots, even if it was 25 minutes from Manhattan, which I like to say a lot. Um, so I had 
two minors, one in history, one in women's gender studies, and my major was English literature. And then I met Adam at Stony Brook. Um, probably Adam, I'm trying to remember, you must have been right into your dissertation when I met you. I think so. I, I started in 2010, which is a decade ago. Um, and I, um, I took a couple of years off in the middle. So you and I met just before I left Stony Brook to, to, it's a long story, but yeah. Yeah. I met you in 2014 in the fall. Yeah, that's right. I would have been, I would have just taken my comps. Yeah. And Adam was still living around the university. That's right. Um, yep. So, and you're still on Long Island. Uh, still maintaining those roots. But, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, he's not actually living full time necessarily on the island. Circumstance considered. Um, it's not my fault. Let's. Can we just can we state that for the court and the record and everything? It's. I, I didn't mean to. I. I was trying to live in Manhattan, and then a lot of a lot of circumstances happened. Yeah, things outside our control. Um, and you were moving on up in Manhattan, not to just use that nice TV <laughs> cliche, but he was, he was like moving further and further North yeah, in Manhattan. Literally. Um, yeah. But okay. So, you know, our mission for this podcast and I came to Adam with this idea and he nurtured my idea, baby, which was sweet. Um, he agreed to co-anchor. So I thank you for that, Adam. Um, is really to talk about this fairy tale system that we both perceived when we entered the PhD program, um, and expectations we might have had. Um, you know, we were reason- told we were told that it wasn't going to be a fairy tale. I I, I was certainly. I mean. I came in in 2008. Well, I came in in 2010. Um, the economic contraction had already happened. Like I was told not to expect much. Mm-hmm. Um, which existed, I think, in my mind alongside the desire, I guess, to be the exception, to be the, the person who just who 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 was able to get through the university. And yeah. get you will in your track position. Yeah, you'll be that prince who climbs up the tower, <laughs> so to speak. Um, <laughs> or, I mean, the other part of it is that I was in a, a sort of strange place in my life when I entered academia, and so I saw it as equally possible that I would go into academia for a few years, try it out, and see if I wanted to continue on. And I found I did, even though I certainly knew that, that there are not that many careers uh, waiting at the end of that degree. Yeah. You knew the economic reality of your decision, certainly. so to speak. Or you, I was actually yeah. told it point blank by one of the people who later became my advisor. Um, mm-hmm. Like it was, it was, I, I visited the university before submitting my application. And she said, in no uncertain terms, do you know what you're getting yourself into? 
And if so, why are you getting yourself into it? Like it, it really was that stark. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. And I had the same experience too. Um, you know, with, um, well, I'll let you finish that thought because well, I think it's important that you explain to everyone. I do um, think that even after all that, there is yeah. this romance that, you know, you get, you go to a PhD program because you like to read, which should be a good enough reason, but doesn't take into account that it's a decade. Well, not, not for everybody is it a decade, but that it's a, the better part of a decade of your life. Um, and yeah, it's many years of your life. And those are, those, those are years well spent, but they're also, Mm -hmm. it's also a bit of a cul-de-sac or it can be, it can very easily be. (laughs) Yeah. But sometimes you're really comfortable on that (laughs) cul-de-sac and, um, you know, like the fairy tale part for me was when I was applying to different grad school programs. I had applied to a few masters, um, so four masters programs and four PhD programs, and I kind of just like threw the fishing rod out and just see what would catch. Like I really thought I wasn't going to get accepted out. to a PhD. You throw the fishing line. Out. Well, the line. Thank you. Mixing my metaphor. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, I really didn't think I would get accepted to a PhD program right away. Like I did think I would go to a master's first, figure out, do I really want to go to a PhD program? But I had really determined with my undergrad advisors. um, And they all told me that this economic reality is awaiting me. So I really have to do it as a passion project, as, you know, wanting to delve deeper and deeper into the 19th century or, you know, um, I was then I didn't know if I was really going into 19th or I was going to do a little more British modernism dabbling. But regardless, I got accepted into um, Stony Brook. And when I visited and I saw those who are in the 19th century, I knew that it was a good fit for me. And I have to say, the fairy tale aspect for me, looking back, right, when you look back, we do have perspective and nostalgia sometimes. And I do ha- feel nostalgia for my coursework years. Like my coursework years were actually more of that heightened fairy tale aspect. Yeah. Even when I was in the coursework, that was the fairy tale aspect for me. That That's the deep dive. Um, they're really – being with your cohort is such a bonding experience. It is. And yeah. I mean, now on my dissertation stage, like I think what's exciting about us launching this podcast is bringing on different people who have had different types of intersected, uh, intersectional or uh, maybe not intersectional. That's not the right word, but they've had different relationships with the university and, you know, that the dissertation stage I find is so fascinating because while I'm deep diving into Walt Whitman world and everything I'm doing with queering Whitman and homoeroticism and, you know, sexually scandalous topics, I also feel there's this disconnect where there isn't those heightened relationships anymore. 
that you feel when you're in coursework. Yeah, that's it's a totally different yeah, experience. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I think when we talk about our projects that we're currently doing right now or communities we're in, I think a part of it is I'm trying to reignite that spark. So let's and so those let's feelings. Um Yeah. Why don't you tell the class um what you're up to these days? What what is your road out of this part of your life and into the next one. Yeah. Well, so, you know, we all know we're in a pandemic right now. Uh, that's not news, <laughs> but I've been lucky. So I've been lucky that I've been able to do my projects um, specifically virtually. Uh, so, at the end of June, I celebrated Pride Month with doing a queer literature talk on bringing in my homeboy, Walt Whitman, of course, because I have to, um, and Oscar Wilde, um, but actually talking about contemporary queer literature and um, mm-hmm. bringing in Tales of the City, the Netflix series. Um, I brought in my icon, Diana Ross, with I'm Coming Out. Um and a few recent novels that have been published to try to talk about why queer literature, especially for me, connects back to Walt Whitman and why Whitman was used as a case study by John Addington Simmons, the um, English Victorian sexologist um, in the 1890s as a test subject so he uses Walt Whitman as a test subject yeah yeah so he uses him and his poetry specifically almost as if he's in a court of law as evidence for well Whitman's poetry is homoerotic so therefore Whitman is a gay poet and homosexuality exists and therefore I John Addington Simmons am a homosexual it's a really wait is that really that's yeah I mean it's not it's not verbatim like that, but that's why he uses the Whitman material. Um, wow. And yeah, but he had known Whitman for 30 years. So it's not like he just randomly meets Whitman. He had this longstanding uh, pen pal type of relationship as a fan. I mean, good um, he for expressed. Him. Yeah, yeah. Well, but he doesn't publish. Um, this case study about Walt Whitman, he calls it Walt Whitman a case study. Um, maybe not an inventive title, but still. <laughs> he gets the point out. And he publishes it right after Whitman dies. So, um, you know, Whitman can't really speak to it or counter it. Um, but he did get Whitman's final say about there's the section of Leaves of Grass called Calamus. Uh, published in 1860. Um, and he keeps asking Whitman, so Calamus is homoerotic, right? Like it is about men wanting to desire and have romantic and even sexual feelings with other men. And Whitman eventually keeps evading the question. I think, <laughs> you know, he has a fan, so he's not going to disappoint his fan. But then not until 1890, 
um, it may be, might be 1891. Whitman dies in 1892. He finally writes back and says, I can't believe you see that in my material. That's so corrupt Wow. that anyone could even see that there. I have sired six children, which isn't true. But still, he tries to use the excuse of, well, <laughs> well he tries to use the excuse of, well, because I've had children, okay, so, I'm not so into this, men. This is the thing, this is the thing that, that keeps bringing us back, right? Is that you take something that's, I don't know about universally beloved. I don't know if anything is universally beloved, but something, something as, as magnificent and magnetic as leaves of grass. And I'm saying this as a scholar of 16th and 17th century British, British is the wrong word, but you get the idea, literature. Um, Right. I did my dissertation on Edmund Spencer, John Milton, Margaret Cavendish, and Philip Sidney, but I love Leaves of Grass. And then you talk to somebody and you find out that the history out, uh, surrounding the work is almost more exciting than the work itself, if that's possible, which is saying something because obviously very, very little stirs the blood like reading Whitman out loud. Um, and so it's... <sighs> Anyway, so yeah, so I do, yeah, so 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 that's what you're doing. Um, so yeah, academic, so that was my recent. Academic. What are that, you? Doing yeah, that was my recent uh, library talk. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how'd it go? It went well. Yeah, I um, had a good audience uh, virtually. I think. <laughs> of course. You know, it's diff- It's it, it's actually exciting to do it on zoom because I could share all of my computer links. Like I could put a lot of videos up as the talk was going. I mean, I'm also a deep indebted fan of call me by your name, the novel and the film. That's my coming out novel. That's the novel I read in 2008 before I came out to my parents. Wow. And it actually was the novel that convinced me that I should come out. Cause I had been feeling um, this identity of being so gay you had for the a while. same reaction to that novel that this John Addington Simmons is it? Yeah, had to had a Whitman had to leave the grass. Yeah, there, there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's always the case in um, academics is that if you scratch a um, if you scratch a decent essay, you'll find the biography underneath. Um, it's true. Yeah, and so. Go on. What I'm happy about is that the talk has been recorded, so I can continue to post it and share it on my uh, website. And I wouldn't be able to do that if it was live. Um, it's a little more difficult. Um, yeah, that's but fantastic. Yeah, and I've done – so the other talk – well, it's not a talk, but I – also, really believe in that Whitmanic spirit of, you know, look for me under your boot soles. Whitmanic um, is not a word, is it? Well, we do use it as avid Whitman people. Um, <sighs> All right. All right. I mean, wait, you're not a, uh, a Spencerian? That's a real word. There's a difference. Whitmanic <laughs> sounds like a medical condition. It probably is a medical condition. Never mind. Please go on. Well, I, I think if you did a CAT scan, you'd find um, leaves all over all over the brain. Um, 
Yeah, you'll see traces and vestiges of Whitman. But I did a Whitman walking tour. So I've done a few of these before, but I actually did it virtually on Zoom. And I went all through West Hills um, and showed the different Whitman. Tell the folks where West Um, Hills is. Sure. So West Hills is adjacent to um, Huntington. Uh, Right by the Whitman Mall. Yeah, it's, it's like, across from the Whitman Wall. It's like central Long Island. It's the most boring place in the world. <laughs> well, I mean, I would argue it's not boring because it has the Whitman, you know. Okay, cons. the most interesting thing that happened in Huntington happened 175 years ago. True. It's a. It's now a nice suburban bedroom community. Actually, John Coltrane used to live there. The great... Uh, jazz musician who was popular in the 50s and 60s and then abruptly died he um, oh, i didn't know that yeah he lived in central long island huh. poor bastard well wow. see it's interesting because i feel like in huntington they would well this is going to get into a debate about long island let's geography, go on, let's go on. Um, which is you know yeah i don't i don't have a vested interest in the debate because so so andrew andrew is managing to give lectures and all sorts of exciting things um, yeah, well, and Adam, how are you faring and, you know, checking in right now yes, with what's so going on with the pandemic? Obviously, I'm devoting my spare hours to finishing an essay on Christopher Marlowe, who is also a very interesting figure. Um, coincidentally, like, he was also, a, like, a, he's also in some ways a very influential queer writer. I mean, he wrote the first, one of the first great uh, homoerotic plays, Henry II, sorry, Edward II, about a king of England and his boyfriends. Um, It's really that simple. And um, so I'm writing about Dr. Faustus, which is his last known play. And it's a it's it's a really great project. I'm really enjoying it. It's too complicated to explain uh, right now, but I. One of but we'll the, get more and more about it as the absolutely. podcast goes on. Absolutely. So that's that's what I'm doing for my academic health, uh, is trying to get published, um, and I'm I'm sort of doing that as a warm up for revisiting my dissertation. I do want to get hired by a university. I do want to produce like clean copies of my chapters and book talks and all the other, not book talks, job talks and all the other uh, specialized uh, types of literature that you need to produce mm-hmm. uh, for the interview process. Yeah. So I'm using this as a warm up. This this article. Um, aside from that, I am teaching in two places right now. I have some. I have an organization I work with um, and you can contact us if you, God help you, if you want me as a writing teacher, but I have an organization I work with um, where we do, it's basically university level creative writing courses for 11 to 17 year olds. If I, if I had to put it in a nutshell, we will take younger, we will take older but that's basically what it is. It, we, we meet once a week. Um, the kids have to do their own writing and we gather back together and we share. And we also supplement with pieces of fiction from 
and nonfiction from, you know, uh, published authors that I think will help them and inspire them and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'd really try to teach, I mean, I wouldn't say I dumb it down. I would say that some of the more troubling works of literature that we read in a university context have no place in my classroom for obvious reasons. But I do try as hard as possible to give them a real university creative writing experience according to the classes that I took when I was at university. Um, at, when I was at Columbia, I took two, three creative writing classes and they were amazing. And I just want to pass that along. Um, the funny thing is that I was teaching a version of this class in person last year. Uh, anybody remember last year? I don't. Um, I was teaching a version of this class in person and we usually only ha- had somewhere between three and eight kids, which was great. Now it's it's still the same size class, but because everything's on the internet right now, are apparently the people who are running the program have contacts I've never heard of because one of the classes that I'm teaching is based, all the kids are based in New York, New Jersey. One of the classes, the kids are based in the United Arab Emirates because of course. They wow. Are. Yeah, that's what I that's said. That's fascinating. That's what I said. They said, would you like to teach a class of expatriate kids living in Dubai? And I said, I guess I won't really have that many opportunities to see how this goes. But who knows? Maybe maybe I become a cultural phenomenon in Dubai and you'll have heard of me and so on. Um, for now, it's just the three kids. And we're doing another one that take that um that draws its populace from china okay so do you think you're do you think it's going to expand because of the pandemic because of school districts going virtually i i don't know i hope it does because i honestly think that there's there's so much emphasis right now on these two basic things right teaching kids to be literate and teaching kids to, to understand math and science, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the kids have to read and write good and they have to have something practical because God knows there's, that's where they're going to get a job one day. Fine. But my thinking is as long as we want, as long as we recognize how important it is to learn the youngins how to read good, we should recognize that creative writing teaches those principles just as well as any other format that you would um, impose on your kids. And it teaches them those things with greater pleasure and greater pleasure of course leads to greater learning because who's going to learn more the kid who's forced to, or the kid who wants to, I think ultimately with kids, it's a combination of both. Um, Quick aside, my first question when I ask the kids their names and where they're from, I always ask, are you here because you want to be, or are you here because your parents made you? And and what do they say? So far I've got base. I mean, basically all of them, well, parents are the ones with resources and initiative and stuff like that. So it's always, it's almost always the parents like tell the kids 
that they want to uh, enroll them, right? But then um, we have a couple of students who who really want to be there. And then we have a few students who eh, sort of want to be there. And I've, I've actually had to teach kids creative writing against their will, which is always fun. Oh my, um, that's an uphill climb. That is an uphill <laughs> battle. Um, but like Adam, if I remember, that's not your first time at the rodeo. You it have other primary schooling experience. It is not. I've, I've been a, I've been different kinds of teacher a lot. And I also still, I still teach um, Hebrew school. I still teach basic Hebrew literacy and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's wild. Me from part six to a class of 10 year olds is, is a commentary on the state of the world. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Well, for our Goy listeners, no, <laughs> no shade, because I was raised Catholic, so I'll consider myself a Goy here. Um, can you just explain like what Hebrew literacy means? Yeah. Um, so basically, when you have a, a, a classroom full of youngins, what you try to do is you try to get it, uh, you try to make it so that they can read um, a page of Hebrew right? A lot of our prayers and study materials and stuff like that are in Hebrew. And so very often you have this unusual case of people who can understand the written language, but don't necessarily know what a lot of the words mean. The assumption is that you're going to, you're going to be like later in life or even not so, not so much later in life. You're going to be studying all these things in a group you're going to have people who know enough who who kept going in their studies to help you out and you could even become one of those people right uh but at the very minimum you want to be able to follow along in the text because there's it's considered that there's something worthwhile about reading the text whether or not you understand it um so, so that's what that's what we do is we is we learn the the twenty two letter alphabet and all of the little um, all of the little vowel symbols and stuff like that, and we try to learn some vocabulary and some songs and some prayers and stuff like that. And apart from that, we have all of these discussions about you know the state of the world um, through a Jewish lens. And I try very hard to let the class be, let the class drive itself, right? Because I have, you know, memories of teachers, both in Hebrew school and in secular studies, uh, thinking they know better because they're older. And that's not, that's not, that's not true. That's not, that's not what makes you know better. Um, so I re- but I really do. I, I, I want them to show up and enjoy themselves, whatever else happens, because I want them to associate the time that we spend together learning with something positive in their lives in the, in these formative years. I think that those memories are incredibly important and incredibly influential on whether the came about right there with engaging with your students 
And I know we feel the same way when we are teaching, whether it be virtually, like I'm teaching virtually a film class right now, or if we're in person in class, we want to impart the type of mentoring that we experienced, which led us into the PhD program. Yes, I would say what binds us together almost binds everyone together who wants to go into a PhD program is having moral ethical teachers who really led them along throughout their journey. Right. Right. That's, that's what we have in common is we all have that one teacher and in multiple, in many many cases, more than one Mm -hmm. who, who gave us this idea. This is what I want to be when I, shall we say, continue growing up. Yeah. And a lot of it is affirming your identities. Like for me, it was even in high school having, you know, a chemistry teacher and a literature, a few literature teachers uh, who just recognized me and, you know, my identity affirmed me, empowered me, and I knew that I could continue my passion in the humanities. And yeah, that's right. You said that you were a chemistry major in college. Yeah. Well, for a short time, I was a double major in English and chemistry. Time, yeah. So, yeah, that, so I had finished me, that organic is- chem. Hang on. That to me is the is the power of a great teacher, because when I look at you, everything I see, like there's not a whole lot of chemists left. There's some it comes out, you know, occasionally, probably more when you're yeah. drunk. Um, <laughs> the calculus comes out when I, if I'm been drinking. Oh, God, that I'll start doing calc equations. I used to do, a, a, you know, some calc equations. Um Especially to see if I could still do integration. But okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> we don't need to talk about calculus. Um, <laughs> anyway, no, but that's the power of a great teacher, right? Is that you meet mm-hmm. that, that chemistry teacher and they inspire you to want to become a chemist. Do you actually want to become a chemist? And it seems like not. It seems like you've course corrected since then. Yeah. But you were so... She, she shaped me so there much. There you go, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what? And I learned a lot too from continuing it in college. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, I think there were moments where those in the literature major would say to me, wait, why are you taking organic chemistry? You could just do like a, low, a lower level chem class and just get an easy A. But it wasn't for me about the easy A. It was about continuing my yeah. learning. Yeah. You know? And it's practice. Uh, of course, yeah. Easy A is 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 good for you. Of course, it's good for your soul. Yeah, and I think something I wanted to bring up is there's an article, and I think this will get us right into the heart of this welcome episode, which is an article called "Public Scholar Beware" by Helene Myers from April 2019. And I just want to read a few of the first sentences, if I can indulge you. Um, so it says. As scholars, we are often enjoined to engage with the public. Professors, don't cloister yourselves like medieval monks. We need you, writes New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. Anthropologist Paul Stoller insists that the time has come for scholars 
guardians of truth and wisdom to step up to the plate and play a much more central role in the public and political sphere. Leonard Casoto argues that we must go public in order to assert our own value and positively impact public opinion about higher education. And many universities and professional associations are bringing workshops on writing beyond the academy to campuses and national conferences. Well, so what's so fascinating to me, Adam, is what Helene Myers is talking about is exactly what the communities we're already embedded in. You're embedded in different schools. I'm embedded in different public scholar projects. And, you know, I work with the Whitman Birthplace as well on a continuing project and am actually working soon with high schoolers on the project. So cool. Yeah. But I think what I want to ask you is what do you make of that? Maybe cautionary advice about don't cloister yourselves like medieval monks where's that coming from because you know you you have that medieval literature history so i want to ask the expert so i i've i have this idea that a university is in some ways at least the the higher education in a university is based on the guild system right where you have this these like journeymen, uh, these apprentices and journeymen and uh, masters, right? Where Andrew would be the apprentice because he hasn't f- finished his dissertation yet. Yeah, and you're. Um, in I what would. I guess be the journeyman. You're a master. I haven't. Got, oh, you're a journeyman. Because okay. I, I haven't gotten a secure post yet, and when I do, I am supposed to become a master. But we'll we'll see if that happens. Um, one of the one of the I think really traumatic events of the of the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance was was just this kind of economic collapse that led to a collapse of the guild system where there were just there were journeymen everywhere that weren't becoming masters because there wasn't room for them. Mm. Um, Sounds familiar. It does sound familiar. And so I think I mean I think that's what, one of the things that we'll be talking about certainly is. Um, is even if even though we go in with these with these jaded eyes and this understanding that we're not going to become tenured professors with a name on our chair and a tweed you know blazer and all that stuff there's still there's still a little bit left over of this fantasy that you you work hard and you go in a straight line and it's just like it's just like climbing Everest. As long as you put one foot in front of the other, you get to the top. Of course, that's not what actually what Everest is actually supposed to be like. It's whatever. Well, it's the and metaphor. I think yeah, and I really one like thinking about this another. guild system metaphor. It's not. I mean, it's not a metaphor because it has an origin in the university system. But thinking sure. about this apprentice journeyman master system is also. We know the realities about the majority of those who get a PhD aren't going to become tenure track professors. That's just not the reality. Right. They go into really fulfilling careers. We know that. One hopes. Well, we hope. We hope. But, you know, I think that fantasy still continues because who are we being shaped by? Who are we being molded by in PhD programs? By people who actually made it, right? Exactly. By the fact, by the professors. So... You know, I think this article 
what I enjoy, so anyone who's listening, you know, we have a link to it called pub, it's called Public Scholar Beware, is there's a lot of cautionary advice about how do you define yourself as a public scholar and maybe you're not going to be rewarded. You know, I'm not going to be rewarded for doing library talks and walking tours by the academy directly, but it's something that fulfills me and it gives me that ignition and passion. And like what you're doing at the Hebrew school and with, you know, being a writing tutor, um, gives you fulfillment. Yeah, and those are important for our, for our identity and, yeah. um, but, you know, sustaining ourselves. But what you're getting at is it doesn't count, right? What counts is publication, yeah. publication. Yeah. So what's being held over my head right now, and I understand it, is the dissertation. Like I have that isolated task of writing and it does feel fulfilling as you're writing, but it's a different type of fulfillment. Like I have to really imagine the audience that I have at other events. Like I try and pretend like I have an audience as I'm writing. Well, that's smart. Because well, yeah, but it's, it's a real beast. It is. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's difficult. It is. I have a um, friend, maybe we'll speak to him in one of the coming weeks who was getting a PhD in Jewish studies and he said, screw it. And he became a rabbi. And one of the reasons why he left academia was because he, at least, at least the way I understand it, and he might tell you differently, he, he was too impatient with the process, writing something now, having it published next year or the year after and having it appear in other academic pieces but never really make it to the wider world right i mean mm -hmm. a guild system that only focuses on its self-perpetuation is going to fail and obviously we don't do that we teach writing and we teach non-majors and stuff like that we teach future english teachers and future history teachers and so on um and i think that that's a big part of what's so important about our work but it's it does feel, it has always felt to me that there is a thick barrier of kind of a sort between the teaching and the research. Even though I do think that the two supplement each other, it just feels like one happens in this communal environment in a classroom where you're talking and joking and trading ideas with people. And one, one happens you know, in the, in the, in the, at the desk, um, alone. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think I do have the ambition or I won't, no, ambition's not the right uh, verb. I think I do have the goal of still applying for university positions. Sure. The, the difficulty is every year looking at the job list, you know, as those jobs are shrinking, you know, I do think there are still positions open. Yeah, it's, there are, you know, there are positions open and, but every year I have to be realistic with myself and realize it's not going to be that, you know, 
relaxing with your feet up at the desk, watching the leaves and the <laughs> vines growing on the uh, Gothic buildings experience. Yeah, um, exactly. Like it may, you know, it may be a four four teaching type of experience. It may be, um, you know, something more with higher ed administration and maybe teaching um, freshmen like a experience course. Like it, it's, it's changing constantly, even yeah. with what these positions look like at universities. And I think um, what I'm ha- excited with, with our podcast is as we bring people on to be interviewed, they're each going to provide different experiences of just communities they've interacted with and maybe even, um, you know, activist projects they're a part of or how that, how do they, how do they keep all these uh, balls in the air as they're juggling? And maybe they're not juggling. Maybe one ball is falling to the ground, then they pick another one up. Cause sometimes I feel like that every day. Yeah. It does feel um, a lot more like that. Like, um, yeah. So, and, so, yeah, exactly. and I, so we're going to have think, people, so we're going to have people on the show mm-hmm. and we're going to ask them, how did you get into this, uh, pro this, this, I don't know, this, this labyrinth, how did you get into the university? In yeah. Um, exactly. What have you been doing if you're still in it to get through it? And what do you think comes next? And unfortunately, those are the basic jobs that aunts and uncles ask every Thanksgiving when you're in university. Um, so we hope that at least the follow-up questions will be a little bit more original. Um, but now... Yeah, well, and you mean it's not going to be it's not going to be the question that I get asked by family a lot, which is, so when is your book coming out? Oh my God. <laughs> which is a... I admire that question, though. I, but I, I do admire think the, the general public. But, yeah, but I think that, um, you know, this type of public scholarship that we're doing, or, you know, your teaching that you're doing, and knowing that you're coming from a university background, like, there is a, there is bridges being built, but I find that it's not... It's not, though, that the universities are creating those experiences for us. We've created these experiences. Certainly. Like, we, we've we reached out to the communities. Certainly. And, yeah. And I, you know, I that's why I consider myself a freelance public scholar. <laughs> like, that's the new title I've given myself, just because it makes me have an, it makes me have motivation and um grounding for what yeah. i'm doing there's a bit of a romance um, to it as well yeah it's true i'm so, creating a, i'm creating a narrative so one mm-hmm. thing one thing that we wanted to make sure that we addressed uh in the first episode is that we just went through this really harrowing experience not firsthand because neither of us neither of us was personally affected by it but the i'm sure you're all aware or many of you are aware the um the basically um federal edict saying that they were going to kick out all of the foreign citizens at american universities if the universities didn't go didn't um open up in the fall you know because of concerns over the fact that there's a giant virulent plague and anyway um yeah so 
the administration is pressuring places to open up, which is sensible of them in some world uh, or other. And they're using these uh, foreign students as a as a political pawn. Now, I think this one is unique among unique in the annals of this administration in that I don't think the 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 primary objective was to be cruel and irresponsible in its treatment of of foreign citizens in our country. I think that that was just a secondary effect. Um, well, I would argue that every policy coming out of this administration has uh, bad intentions from the get-go. But I, you know, I think a lot of different. Them do. I think a lot of them do, and and a lot of them. I do. think cruelty, cruelty is just the one of the ingredients that are added. A lot, a lot, a lot of them that that seem to be well-intentioned. Mm. Don't stick their landing, and and it's just frustrating. But um, yeah, well, the idea, what's the, the idea here is? is not to get the idea here is not to get into global politics because there are plenty of places, God knows, for that. The idea is to have some students, um, and when I say students, I'm talking people in their 30s and 40s, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. People, you know, people who are who who have lives, um, who have families by too. This. Yeah, who have families and who have, you know, really precarious positions right now of, you know, not knowing if they can stay in the country or not. Yeah, exactly. And that's a real concern that we need to think about. And, yeah, we're going to be having people on who can address that from a firsthand experience. Yeah, and, and I do come to this somewhat firsthand because my um, my girlfriend is from – was born and raised in Bombay. She, uh, I met her when she was living in this country and her visa was, was basically forced to expire. Like she worked for a not-for-profit that had previously had no trouble renewing visas. And then suddenly all their visas were, were, were expiring and she had to leave the country. So great. She, she had to go back to, well, she went to, to London and then she had to go back to India to be with her family for the pandemic Meanwhile, I can't leave the country because this is basically the world's leper colony. And so that's mm-hmm. that's how my life has been going. Um, that has nothing to do with being a student or anything else. It has to do with just another you know, policy that affects human beings. Um, but another psychological weight that's on these students. Oh, God, yeah. You know? God yes. Even 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 though the problem is resolved, right? Yeah, by the, now, now, from the fact that these students tend to bring money to universities, they were being used as leverage. Oh, of course. But even though the problem is yeah. resolved for now, that doesn't like there are still there are still issues. There are still concerns, and it's still just another thing that certain grad students have to deal with that others don't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's exactly it's it's so important that we bring that up um, to conclude this episode, just because th- that kind of topic is so prescient right now that you know there's there's many different obstacles, even 
like the obstacle of just getting through a PhD program and then understanding like what kind of job is awaiting you is an obstacle itself. Like that has a lot yeah. of juggling, but yeah, then there's also that... this, op then there's also, you know, adding this on top of that, right. which adds even more uncertainty. Right. And, the one um, thing doesn't go away because you have the other thing to deal with. It's no, no. Plus I guess it would be inter family. intersectional obstacles. I don't know what the term is. Um, yeah. Intersectional yeah. obstacles. I think, I think that's, it's an it's a bit of a blocky term, but it's that's what we've got right now. Yeah. So, you know, I think to conclude, I know I am, and I'll speak for Adam here. We're excited to just connect with all of you out there and let you know um, there is these conversations are happening. Yeah, they are. And they are. They can happen now in a virtual way and a way to connect to all of you out there yes. to know, you know, you're not alone. You're There's not. a lot of uncertainty right now. And we're, you know, we can share each other's successes too. Yeah. Like I want to bring in something a little bit that I think is a little bit optimistic, which is unusual okay. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring in the optimism. It's unusual for me, but some, but, but I'm going to try, I'm going to try being optimistic for a little. And if it doesn't work, it's just because I haven't that, had that much practice. So bear with me. <laughs> so the optimism for me comes in with the fact that people I know, people I've met a single time at a single like family event are bursting with questions to ask an English PhD student or any anybody who is who is a dedicated scholar, right? Mm -hmm. I met some guy at a wedding who was like asking me all these questions about Galileo when he heard that I'd written a paper about Galileo. Um, and I met somebody at like a Passover Seder. And I remember exactly when this was. It was 2013. I was, I was still doing my comprehensive exams. I had traveled to my dad's house with the complete works of Chaucer in my, in my weekend luggage. <laughs> and you would he, do that. He had this. He had this stupid idea. This is one of the one of the persistent um, idiocies that's been going around the internet for as long as I can remember, possibly for as long as there's been an internet. That words that 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 our treasured and beloved curse words like fuck and shit are acronyms that consist of. I've heard that fuck stands for fornication under Charles the King. Some, some, just these ridiculous canards. And somebody presented this to me like it was a Fabergé egg for me to examine. And the amazing thing <laughs> is, is that I had the book in my, you know, in my, in my bag. I, I, I went into the other room. I took out Geoffrey Chaucer's, uh, Canterbury Tales. I opened to the prologue and I showed him the word shit dating to, well, I mean, it was written approximately the year 1375 and, and the publication dates to the year 1400, right? Something about um, the comparing a pastor, the, the virtue of a pastor and his flock to um, a shitten shepherd with clean sheep, right? Which... I love so much the idea that he's expect, expressing this like religious wisdom using the word shit and the idea of like 
shit spatter on the coat of a shepherd. Because that's oh my, that's an awful that's what image. Presbyter and all these like all these words basically mean is they mean shepherd, right? And so the idea of a shepherd as a person mm-hmm. who like shows up on Sundays and gives a nice speech and reads from the Bible versus a shepherd who is covered from head to toe in goat shit. Anyway. Okay, I'm going to be kind with this, but okay, get to the point. Get anyway, to the point. No, no, no. So, so the, po- the, point, the point is that people are bursting with these questions. People want academics in their lives. And they're asking – yeah, and I, I think you're exactly right, Adam, and that's why this type of having people of different experiences in the university and those they interact with out in the public sphere, I mean, the private and the public sphere, I would argue the difference between being at the university and being out of the university is very blurry, and it's exactly like, what kind of questions do they want to ask those of us who study close reading for yeah. a living yeah, or, exactly. or just like really looking really closely at text. And like, even recently, you know, with everything going on with racial and social justice, I've been asked a lot about, can I explain the dark side of the founding fathers? And, you know, yeah. I don't study yeah. the colonial literature of America, it's but still, they I do think we have a certain. Had, and, and they forced their bodies on them. It's not that hard. Well, yeah, but I think, <laughs> but I think they're looking for they're looking for that certain authority, sure. And like the authority sure. does become the people who've closely studied. Like, why do we go, you know, to lawyers or to certain specialized doctors? It's that same type of experience. And um, yeah, that is optimistic. I agree with you. I mean, <laughs> and I have to say, I'm not. I did it right. I, sometimes we. You did it right. You did bring amazing. in optimism. That's amazing. I'm very happy, and you know. I think that it does it does bring me enjoyment, especially even with such uncertainty and crises happening right now. Even during Pride Month, I felt such a hugging embrace from different people of all different backgrounds of us just trying to find they them asking me, well, what books should I read, Andrew? Like what books yeah. Do you recommend that yeah. have LGBTQ themes or like what kinds of television shows are you watching? And I realized, wow, we really are in the university. We are taught to cultivate lists yeah. or give people different text to uh, occupy their time with. So yeah, that is optimistic. I think you did it right. You did the ending right. <laughs> All right. I loved I liked right. it. Okay, well, that's all for now. Okay. Before I fuck it up. Okay, well, on we will all see you again on our next um episode and uh we'll introduce you to our first uh interview experience. Fantastic. Okay. We haven't decided which one okay. it is. Um, no, we haven't decided, like, but it's gonna be an exciting like person. Yeah. We know that. Okay. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Thank you. Stay well, as well as we can all be. Oh, God, yes, please.